What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we're chatting with Josh Hill, a GTM operations and tech executive with more than 20 years of experience in B2B sales, marketing, and technology. Josh started his career in enterprise sales at The Economist before moving to a demand gen role where he wore many hats, including MarTech and database management. And he then had a few short stints at different software and cybersecurity companies, touching everything from SEO, SEM, content branding, email deliverability, and data quality. He was also a solopreneur and consulted with senior marketing and sales leaders at B2B SaaS companies. Josh is best known for creating marketing rockstar guides. Uh, the blog that he ran for seven years, uh, one of the top blogs supporting marketing technologists uh, before its acquisition by Tumos, a marketing automation consultancy. And most recently, Josh spent seven and a half years at Ring Central, moving up to Associate VP of MarTech, where he built and led a globally distributed center of excellence to scale GTM and MarTech architecture. And today, Josh serves as advisor at OpenRise, a RevOps data automation platform for enterprise. Josh, pleasure to have you with us today. Thanks for your time. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to be here and I'm glad uh, people have made the most of my content over the years. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Knack. Launching an email or landing page in your marketing automation platform shouldn't feel like assembling an airplane mid-flight with no instructions, but too often that's exactly how it feels. Knack is like an instruction set for campaign creation, from establishing brand guardrails and streamlining your approval process to Knack's no-code drag-and-drop editor to help you build emails and landing pages. No more having to stop midway through your campaign to fix something simple. Knack lets you work with your entire team in real time and stops you having to fix things mid-flight. Check them out at knack.com, that's K-N-A-K, and tell them we sent you. Yeah, Josh, thanks so much for for joining us on the podcast. Um, I'd love, love to take you all the way back to The Economist, where you spent four years in sales, focusing on renewing accounts and selling new business. I know in my own career, I spent a very brief amount of time on the sales side of things, which was interesting for me and helped me kind of round out my perspective. I know you moved from uh, moved into marketing in a demand gen role after the four years in sales. Walk us through that transition. What motivated you to to move from sales and move over to the dark side? I don't know if it was the dark side or not. Anything that's been a career <laughs> accelerator. You know, a lot of people give out the advice if you want to learn business, go into sales. Right? It certainly has a lot to offer. You know, commissions. You get to talk with customers on a daily basis. Own your customer service skills and. Uh, learn negotiation, among other things. And I think it did, all, did do all of those things. And I don't know if I would have done it anywhere else other than The Economist, uh, based on what I've seen other sales teams have to do to achieve their goals and the kind of pressure they're under. But it, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that experience helped me build a certain business skill set, which served me well later in customer, as well as you know, managing stakeholders and managing vendors as well. Being a vendor, and understanding that experience is, is extraordinarily helpful um, in building that kind of multi skill set you need in marketing and technology or rev ops. So, so that was a great starting point in retrospect. And I think it really did help me to, I, I can take that experience and apply it to how do I work with sales teams? What are they really trying to experience? 
what is marketing trying to do and how would I approach that from a customer point of view, right? One of the things I was hearing when I was a salesperson was not what we were saying in our marketing materials. And, and no one really read our marketing materials. Don't tell anybody that. But I would kind of look at it and I would say, what well, that's not what you just said, why you bought it, right? So I would quickly, quickly mm -hmm. realize I should stop talking about whatever we had written <laughs> and just start reflecting that those talking points to other customers, which was much more successful and making me one of the top reps at the time. And I wanted to do that at scale. <clears throat> so how do you do that at scale? Well, you go into marketing, right? I don't, how can I help the company take the, these messages, condense that and get it out there to other people in a different way, right? It was a very sales-led organization at the time. So that could be a helpful <laughs> transition. And I got a transfer to marketing and I started doing that. And they were actually using my brochures for a really long time after I left. But when I joined, there was a great opportunity to create a content-based marketing and move away from very sales-led motion, right? So instead of getting sales pitched during a field event, it was a very small introduction. Hey, I'm a salesperson. Here's the, here's the expert we are going to listen to to talk about our forecast. And then we would let that kind of brand experience come to life. Now, it's a little unique with The Economist, but you can replicate it in your organization. As long as you have a good point of view and you have content, you have some sort of expert who isn't just a salesperson. Uh, so that was a really wonderful experience. But of course, you need to automate a lot of the functions behind that, sending email, registering people, SEO and whatnot. And then there's also sales marketing alignment. And I started to learn about all these things and uh, helped lead the organization through that kind of business transformation first. And I also did a lot of attribution reporting almost by hand, which is very painful. I don't recommend doing it. So I learned a lot about Salesforce. I learned a lot about how to send email and how not to send email. Uh, if you want a Moops example, I literally had our guy pull the plug on a server when I made a mistake. That's how archaic we were operating. And I said, this is, there's got to be a better way to do this, right? And I was introduced to marketing automation tools. But one of the reasons I thought it was really successful um, is when I had developed a relationship with the CRM team, back when SOPS was still kind of nascent, but actually starting before marketing operations really came to the fore. Yeah. So there was a question about that on LinkedIn the other day. SOPS, I think, came first. But also, I could apply that technology experience, that customer service experience I'd had previously, and plan out the transition on the technical side. But the really cool part was that we had already made the business transformation Marketo was selling at the time. We just needed to automate it, kind of scale things up. And... It was a very successful project. Maybe it was a little later than we expected, but it, it worked. And I kept seeing this as a consultant when I shifted in, to being a freelancer and working with Percuto and other companies was anytime a company was unhappy, it wasn't because the tool was not the right tool. Sometimes they were oversold, that's true, but it's because they never really went through that transformation. They didn't adopt demand generation techniques didn't really understand the power they had. They didn't want to have that power. They just wanted to send some emails sometimes. And anytime it was successful, it was because they had really embraced that digital transformation, both funnel transparency transformation, and they wanted to leverage that. Very cool. At some point in that journey, you decided to double down on this idea of 
sharing all the learning that you've been doing from a platform platform perspective, but also just like the marketing technologist's general bucket of of the role itself. And that's actually how I discovered you like more more than a decade ago, like through Marketing Rockstars, uh, the blog that you created. I, I still remember reading like the, the guide to lead nurturing and the MarTech tech stack assessment tips, all the way to like the primer on careers in, in BDB marketing and why that's different from, from other uh, different different types of orgs and how to break into MarTech at, at any age. Uh, that's, that's the one that I, I reference. Um, and I, I would love for you to like, just walk us through the journey of, of building what I think is one of the most respected go-to resources for, for MarTech pros and the experience of, of, of selling it to, to an agency. Uh, super curious. So that was around a time when a lot of people were still talking heavily about content marketing and it was still I wouldn't want to say new exactly, but it was the latest hot topic. And that kind of coincided with personal branding. And I was very interested in that at the time. And I was starting to be involved in the community. It was still kind of not fully launched in some ways. Um, but I had been learning a lot and trying to solve various workflow problems with the tool. And I saw a lot of people were really struggling with, how do I actually use this thing? You know, I'd been fortunate that I had, I have kind of the, the mindset to learn these kinds of tools and the interest. All the learning was actually by doing. And some people just were struggling. They knew what they wanted to do, but they weren't trying to get it done. So I was solving problems on the community and I said, mm. well, maybe I should build that content on the blog and build up a brand. And we'll see where that goes. Uh, because one of the first, actually was the first consulting gig I had was I, I offered a basic solution on a LinkedIn forum. And someone said, oh, well, maybe I should hire you to do that. So that was my first gig. And I said, well, I, I could share that with other people. And, you know, it's kind of like sharing a recipe book, right? Some people will want to come to your restaurant and some people will try the recipe out themselves, which is cool. And it became a real inbound engine for my consulting business and, you know, helped me create a kind of a platform and email list. And I enjoyed doing it. I, you know, people like you who came by and said, hey, Thank you for helping me figure these things out. Thank you for helping me understand how to do X, Y, Z or my career. And a lot of those topics came out of just you know, either community questions, people like you asking me a question. So I wanted to help people and I did start with that. It helped me build up speaking gigs as well. So that was fun. So I was doing that and my full-time job. And I like, you know, after hours and on the weekend, I just decided, well, I think I've achieved everything I can with this blog. And I didn't really want to give it up on some level, but, you know, it was a lot to have a big system and manage that and a big team and do all this. And there's only so much marketing tech. So I, I said, well, I kind of want to step away. How would I do that? And, um, you know, I just asked around, like, who wants to take it over? And, you know, Edamos said, you know, we can take it on. And I said, okay, you know, now that I've and I moved on from the other role, I, I'm kind of exploring like what would be the best content platform, right? I've seen, you know, Sarah who was on the other day, uh, a lot of people had built followings on LinkedIn. That was not an area I had really focused on in the past. And I, I'm wondering if everyone has abandoned blogs, if that's still the way to go and how do I share effective information? Because there's only so much you can share in a LinkedIn post, right? So I'm still kind of exploring the next step for what kind of content I want to share in the future. 
Any suggestions? <laughs> podcast. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, run a podcast. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm saying that a little bit tongue in cheek. Um, you said something earlier that I wanted to to play with a little bit. When you were at The Economist, you were doing attribution by hand. And I can imagine, you know, an early in demand gen, you want to prove your attribution, the value of what you're doing. And you're like, I'll do it no matter what. I'll sift through the database and find this. But then you also kind of talked about how when you went into consulting, you saw that organizations that were a little bit unsuccessful didn't hadn't done the kind of groundwork, I guess you could say, the transformation work. One of the things that you talk about and most practical piece of advice is that you have is the importance of playing with the MarTech. And I'm wondering a little bit if we can play with this in terms of the idea of doing hands-on work, like automating manual effort before you automate. Um, and then also just like playing with the idea of how much exploration is important for, and in your mind at least, is important for MarTech people to do. Like, hey, go hands-on, struggle, then go to Marketing Rockstar Guides or go to Marketing Rockstar Guides, go to get your certifications and all of that. Like, how much struggle should we feel in MarTech to really embrace it? How much should we go through the CRM and be like, Damn it, I'll prove attribution if that's the last thing I do. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. I do that. <laughs> so I, I kind of get in two themes there, right? One is how do you train yourself? How do you learn how to use these tools or these concepts? The other is how do you do attribution? I don't recommend doing it by hand. You know, I had a pretty small funnel at the time. So it wasn't super hard to leverage Salesforce campaigns and kind of say, well, I'm going to do a nine month cutoff and see how all those leads and accounts and ops did. And, you know, it, it was kind of a whole day or two day process every month to kind of update that spreadsheet. And, you know, it largely worked. I could see that I was bringing in new leads that my experiments with the kind of content or even charging for events was effective in certain scenarios. And I could decide, yeah, I'm going to keep doing that or I'm not at least on the tactical level, but I could also show like, Hey, you know, field events do work. I forget what the exact number is off the top of my head, but you know, over a three year period, I was able to reduce costs and bring in a lot, a wider audience and successfully bring in enough money to justify continuing to spend it. And the same thing for webinars and other and whatnot. Some channels didn't really work for us for various reasons. Uh, so that kind of taught that low level attribution kind of taught me that you do need to build up something different and that helped me develop the channel offer method, which I did at a number of on a number of projects and then at Ring Central to build up the data set for attribution. We could talk a lot about that if you really want to, but I don't have a whiteboard on me. The but did you want to learn any of these concepts? You mentioned the play to learn. You know, I, I did a talk a few years ago where I mentioned that. And there's always going to be work, <laughs> right? One of the mantras I had for my team and myself is don't always try to overthink it. You got to play to learn. What does that really mean for a lot of people? That means ask the question, right? If you want to send an email to an audience, say, okay, where is the button that sends an email, right? Can I click on a menu and see where it could be? You know, I think most people know how to use most computers or Microsoft Office. So you say, okay, well, if I click on the file menu, what do I usually see there? Right? It's probably not send an email. So, okay, where, where do I go for that? Is it under tools? Is it under send an email? Is it, what are the components I have to build up to actually send that email? Well, I need some copy. 
okay, I need an image maybe. Where do I send it from? How do I gather all that information together? And where do I actually place it in the system? And, you know, with enough training and doing it a lot, you kind of just naturally know these things. You know, same thing for how do I build a webinar or how do I capture data for a white paper? It's like, well, is there a button for that? Do I have to build something for that? So you have to kind of think through all those little pieces that need to get built up. Uh, you really just have to ask those questions. Now, the nice thing is that the content, the help documents, the guides today are a lot more developed than they were 10 or 12 years ago when I was writing a lot of that content. And a lot of that content was designed to fill a gap that other companies weren't filling. They didn't explain how do you actually do an email send? How do you actually build a white paper capture form? How do you capture that attribution data? What do you do with that after it's done? Those are the kinds of questions you need to ask yourself. What happens after I fill out this form? Do I send a lead to sales? Okay, well, how do I do that? Is there a best way to do it? Do I just kind of set it up and then I'll optimize it? Sure, all of those things, right? You know, memorizing the docs can be helpful, but it's not, that's not always going to get you to a point where you can leverage the tool effectively for the actual solution you want. So if you kind of take that different mindset to it, it's, it's not, oh, it's not an email engine, it's a workflow engine. Well, now your, your approach to leveraging it is a little bit different because then you can say, oh, well, I could, maybe I could get it to do this, right? How would I think through that problem, right? And that's what I try to do with all the trainings is, sure, I can teach you X, Y, Z in a system, but then you have to ask yourself different kinds of questions about how would I use this to solve something? Are there pieces, tools, features I haven't been using that could do something like a data value mm -hmm. chain? A lot of people built data normalization. Now, is that the most efficient way to do it? No, but it's the most expedient way for a marketer to deal with it. So I always urge people to play to learn, but having tools, documentation, videos does help. I think you guys mentioned, yeah, I mean, look, everyone learns a little bit differently. I, I tend to really like to do you know, hands-eye coordination, right? I want to be at the mouse pressing a button. And I think a lot of people learn faster that way when they're trying to solve a real problem. Now, obviously you have to be a little careful in a production environment, but there are ways to handle that. I think formal training can be helpful in starting you on a path or having a self-guided video, but it, it never really, uh, I don't think it connects the dots in people's brains as efficiently as saying, okay, mm -hmm. hey, tomorrow we got to launch a webinar and send me out an email to get people to sign up. Let's go do that. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely a lot of different paths to to learning. I, I love this idea of like tutorials or, or watching a YouTube video, like a how-to guide on something. Uh, but yeah, when I was learning new platforms, uh, I, I liked the long form tutorial blog post with like images and, and links out to different things. Like I think that the support docs get you uh, a certain, a certain way there, but you, you need to break stuff to really learn uh, from, from some of your mistakes. And these tools are changing all the time too, right? Like yeah. just cause you know how to do something one day, like they're, they're adding new features consistently and, and the UI is, is changing. I know Marketo's UI is, not really changing, but <laughs> that's a conversation for, for another podcast. I think if there are videos or documentation, you can have side by side and remembering this is in school, have those things side by side, have two or three screens going, like carefully build it out, try to test it, you know, build on the previous concepts. I think it's very possible for people with the right mindset to learn any of these systems and to once you learn one, you really learn them all. There's just nuances about how it thinks.
yeah, relational databases, workflow engines. There's there's so many similarities be between them. Um, I think that there's there's something to be said about you know where your role fits in the Martech stack, whether you're you know, the, the, the campaign operator, the person working on content, like pressing the send button, looking at like results. Uh, there's persons who are a bit more like on the content side, uh, they're working in Google docs, coming up with copy. And I'm on the flip side of that a bit more behind the scenes is your more technical marketing ops, uh, professionals, and maybe even in some cases an overlap with developers, right? Like you said, in a few places that building this idea of a customer experience relies heavily on marketing DevOps or developers, HTML designers, HTML coders. And one article that we've chatted a bit about with uh, other guests on the show, uh, we asked uh, Sarah Heard Vice on this too. Um, this article is written by Casey Winters. It's titled The Problem with Martech and, and why Martech is actually for engineers. He argues that Martech is a response to engineering constraints and that successful Martech companies are essentially just catering to engineers, not actually marketers. Would love to get your take on this. Is is Martech actually for engineers? I think he's right in the sense that it was a response to engineering constraints, right? And that's, you know, I, I don't know how much anyone remembers about the original marketing automation platforms and the number of competitors that were actually around in 2009 and 2010. And a lot of what they were saying was, don't wait for the web team. Don't wait for engineers to build you a form. You can do it yourself because you have templates. Mm -hmm. That was very appealing. I'm like, yeah, I, I know enough about HTML and how this should work that, yeah, why should I call the engineering team? It's going to take three months to build out a custom form. And this is obviously, there were CMSs at the time, but many companies were still leveraging kind of not out of the box customized things where they had all sorts of back stuff together. I mean, some still do, but it wasn't as API friendly. So how does the market get a webinar form up that's on brand, that does the kind of experience that you want and Marketo. Now, there was a period of time, so maybe I would say the last couple of years where I did solve the engineering problem, demand gen marketer even with some knowledge of technology could do that, right? And then you ended up with the marketing operations teams and specialists who knew how to leverage this more effectively and could specialize on it, right? People like me who kind of had a technology background, but wasn't really, it wasn't in technology, right? But it was natural for me to kind of be interested in, in that and make full-time switch to say, you oh, know, I'll, I'll do this whole thing. But having that background in marketing and sales is very helpful in kind of understanding how to apply the technology. Whereas, you know, I think you guys, you and Sarah were talking about this, like an engineer doesn't always know what the marketer is really thinking, regardless of friction points where marketers, you know, some marketers, especially in technology, SaaS companies change your mind a lot. It's, you know, it's not about, you can't mind read someone, right? Right. So like if the marketers have the keyboard doing it, that's technically, theoretically better. And I think that is very effective for certain kinds of organizations. But as marketing tech has matured, as people want real-time omnichannel personalization, as they work on PLG motions, as they work closer to the databases, because that data that you need to drive the campaign or sales motion or trigger certain things is no longer exclusively in the map. And more companies and marketing ops people are looking at it on map and saying, well, it's acting like my CDP, but it's not really what I need it to do because it can't handle certain things, but not certain scale. 
So for many organizations, now they need marketing engineers or they need more coders to do certain things more effectively to build that experience. So you can have at least kind of hybrid marketer engineers like me or people in my team to do that. You could hire actual data engineers to help you do those integrations. So there is a shift at a certain level of organization where you need more engineers, but I don't think MarTech is designed for engineers. I think it's still designed with really marketers in mind, which, you know, we could have a debate about, <laughs> is that the right approach? Because the reality is most marketers don't use it, right? It's the MOPS team that uses it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the take there. I think the there's definitely a lot of marketer converts into mops, right? And so, and even from from my background, like uh, definitely more in, in startups and seeing, you know, the marketing ops person and the marketer, like they're they're the same person. They're they're wearing the same hat, so they definitely are in the tool itself. And even though they are enabled in some cases by the engineering team for the more technical stuff, like. They, they understand the use cases. They're the ones building stuff. They're trying to improve the customer experience. So, you know, who who is really MarTech for, I think, isn't really the question here. The question should be more like, how do engineers and, and, and MarTech folks work better together? And I think that's that's where we kind of landed with, uh, with Sarah. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at Census. Census is a data activation platform loved by marketing teams at Sonos, Canvas, Crocs, Notion, and more. As a customer, I've experienced the magic of Census firsthand. Their no-code audience hub and reverse ETL enable me to use our cloud data warehouse to power growth and create highly personalized customer journeys in all of my marketing platforms like Iterable and Google Ads. If you like the Humans of MarTech podcast graphics and you want your very own image, we're doing a monthly raffle for a personalized t-shirt designed by us. Enter to win at getcensus.com slash humans. I don't, I don't think there, there is a massive, like, for example, a, a marketing automation rollout or like implementation or migration without at least having a couple of engineers involved in in the project. Uh, we talked about that with uh, Wyatt Bales last season on the show. Uh, he's actually spoken very highly of, of your work. Uh, I know you guys collaborated on uh, a project together. He, he called one of your global marketing automation rollouts one of the largest the industry has ever seen. Uh, curious if you can talk to us about that project. I wonder if that's still true. Probably was at the time in many ways. Well, we were doing a 20-year region rollout. I probably joined about a quarter of the way through, and I, I don't remember how long Wyatt was involved, but yeah, Wyatt's really great. So I appreciate that he had, still remembers me and has good thoughts. And I think, you know, for both of us, it was a really great experience because it was one of the larger rollouts at the time. There were a couple other companies I'm aware of that were doing pretty large global rollouts with and. You know, there was that kind of marketing transformation, especially outside the U.S. And there was also the technical side. Uh, and the technical side, in many ways, and this sounds a little flip to some people, I think, it's like, well, it's kind of easy. The hard part is how do you align around the strategy, the lead flow, the GTM motion? How do you make hard decisions around that? And some of that had already been thought through before I joined the project, but I could really see that. The model for managing it was a hub and spoke. You know, central team could set the standards, 
and we go train the regional teams on demand generation techniques and how to leverage the pool and the kind of standards that we would have. And then we make local adjustments and then connect uh, the data together uh, with the engineers. And it was a very pretty good template that I can use later on and inform some of my talks about how to manage larger marketing technology programs. And I don't know, again, I don't know if it's the largest scale. It wasn't the largest scale I've worked on, but uh, I could see that there were still regional differences. And some of them were pretty stark. Some of them were less stark about, well, people buying into demand gen, SEO, content marketing versus just advertising. I could see that certain kinds of, that lead nurturing, for example, really did work, right? It, it worked at least to higher velocity um, deals once you reach MQL. And with Marketo's tools, you could really see that for the first time and have it be, be visible. So it taught me some of those interesting lessons and especially around IT management, as well as you know, how do you train marketers to accept the new reality? Um, you know, when I think about newer projects, you know, that and my experience at The Economist really showed me that you need to have that strategy first, the business requirements first, and then you can successfully bring in or build an automation or tool to support that. Anytime I've ever seen people be unhappy with a tool, and it's always, well, I'm unhappy with X tool. I'm like, okay, really, what? tell me about that. And when you boil it down, it's really that the business process wasn't automated, sorry, wasn't decided on properly. So of course the automation is not going to work because you didn't bring people along for the ride. You didn't make those strategic decisions. So you know, when you hear about, when you, when you get a vendor, especially like you know Marketo or Eloqua or back in the day who said, I'm selling you business transformation, marketing transformation, full funnel transparency. It's like, okay, great. How do I get there? I'm like, oh, use our tool. I'm like, okay, but how do I use your tool to do that? And eventually you'd get to the details. And I always suggest you ask mm -hmm. those questions of any vendor. But whenever that was successful, you had that transformation happening already or had already happened, or then you could scale up that automation or you could leverage the attribution correctly because you'd already made decisions about it and it was easy to implement a tool. So anytime you ever hear someone complain about a vendor, it's almost rarely that the vendor is fault. Don't throw out the vendor if you haven't pointed the finger at yourself first. Um, you know, something interesting you said that kind of uh, dovetails to the next question that I have for you is around AI, right? We'd be uh, remiss not to speak about AI a little bit today, but you kind of hit on a couple of themes throughout this interview that I thought was really interesting around the data points needed, um, the business transformation. I suspect right now there's a lot of organizations trying to retrofit AI into their marketing technology stack and their MOP strategy. You wrote a really good piece uh, after Mops of Palooza about uh, unlocking the power of AI and RevOps. You mentioned a few points, and I think one of them that I, I touched on is the need for high-quality data. To me, and some of the guests that we've asked this question to, or variations of this question to, there's almost like this validation, like, hey, Mops people have been telling us forever that we need better data. And it's like, finally, now you know, because we have these AI tools that we're trying to retrofit into our into our lives. I want to talk a little bit about like what does high quality mean to you in the the dawn of the era of AI, not to be you know too superlative, uh, but also just like the role of MOPS in in the deployment of AI technology. Well, for I don't know how long, at least ten years, people would mention AI to me, especially like, oh, we want next best asset. I'm like, okay, I I don't know any tools that can really do that effectively, um, or 
predictive models that supposedly had machine learning, even though they're just regression models. Um, but either way, first and foremost, and I, I did this in my MarTech maturity model is, do we have the right data? Are we? And if we do, and that right data, it's clean enough, normalized enough, then how do we plan to use it? What is that business process or decision around it, right? So for example, if predictive lead or account scoring, is sales going to trust it? And we show that the model is really working effectively before we even deploy it. You know, have we done the appropriate testing? Because I could make up any scoring model, and if sales is trusting it, they're going to go with it. If they don't trust it for some reason, it's not going to matter what I tell them or what the number says, if it's 10 or 20 or 1,000. So the same thing applies in many ways to AI. It's like, okay, well, do we have a data set that we can leverage? And for many people, they probably don't have the resources to tag the data in a way that I think how people think about an LLM is going to work, or the data set's not even really large enough. But there are other AI models to, to leverage to explore things like chatbots and better KB searching and knowledge-based searching and things like that. But that's always my question. It's like, what are we going to do with it? How do you want that to work? I, well, let us worry about the data later, or if in, in many ways, or if they really insist on next best asset, it's like, okay, well, do we have the data and the content to support that? Who's going to manage that process? Oh, we don't have anybody to manage that process. Oh, well, it kind of needs someone to tend the fire and add content and keep it, check on it. So if we don't have anybody, then it's not. Why are we even talking about this? There's certain organizational maturity, a certain data level maturity that needs to go into this. To answer your, your core question is what kind of data is good? I mean, it kind of depends a little in organization. You know, when I do a, a mark tech audit, I always look at how many people are engaged on a first party basis? How many people can we actually email or communicate with by different channel? Do we have good data cleaning and normalization, which means like are we scrubbing bad leads, hard bounces, old customers? Are we taking those out of the equation? Are we, we removing people we can't market to or communicate with at all? Are we cleaning up titles, account codes, thick codes, country normalization, state normalization? Is that working at scale? Do we have a standard, right? If we don't, maybe we need to choose one before we can go forward. Do we have good attribution collection if we need it? Uh, because all of that's going to go into something like personalization, whether that's deterministic, you know, we're making the business rules around it, or we let the AI deal with it. Because if you have high first name in like 10,000 fields, and that's not just a token, um, it doesn't matter what the AI is capable of doing. It's always going to spit out high first name, right? So these kinds of things need to be examined very closely before you try to scale that up. I think there's a lot of unglamorous work that goes into making the the AI transition work for a lot of organizations. And I was listening to an interview uh, you had on, I think it was a recent interview on the Opstars podcast, and you were talking about internal KPIs and measuring processes that maybe aren't as flashy as what we're talking about with deploying brand new sexy AI tools to your system. Um, you know, the context I think you had was something around lost deals and almost lost deals. Like, what is the value of going back to those to those folks? In my own career, we used to do these dreaded reheat emails uh, to the database that was like, you know, every end of quarter sales would poke us and say, hey, can you can you send a reheat email? And 
it was a frustrating process because obviously everybody on the marketing team was thinking this shouldn't be ad hoc. This should be something that we have bacon as an internal process. I thought what you were saying in that podcast and, and even tying into some of the work that you're talking about with prepping for AI is really interesting. How do you educate teams that you work with around those processes to kind of proactively find those areas that aren't flashy, brand new, net new, but are actually like extremely high value and core to what people are doing, particularly like the demand gen teams? What was the reheat process you were doing? Was that a, a win back or is that more of a wake the dead? Uh, wake the dead. It was a wake the wake dead. Wake the dead. Old, tri old trials, you know? Yeah. Ah, old trials. That's, that's it. Well, it's better than some of the other things that I've done where we literally try to wake the dead. You know, if you have non-responders and just keep spamming them, some people will respond. Oh, okay, sure. Um, but you're right. You can automate those processes most of the time. Should you automate them is a good question. Um, sometimes it's not always up to you as a marketing ops person. Um, but that's where I always try to have my team advise on best practices and to say, okay, well, if we're going to wake the dead, let's try to hit certain groups of people. So it's a little more focused and more likely to not set off, you know, email vulnerability issues. Right. But to get people to think about that, as you say, it's a process, not an ad hoc thing. That's what marketing operations has to lead just as we have to lead in AI to say, Hey, this is taking up a lot of your time, a lot of my time. It sounds like this is relatively repeatable and you're always going to need something like this. Let's just design this out of the journey, whether it's a complete end-to-end -end process or we run a what I would call a campaign journey session. And let's just design that out. Say, okay, instead of every quarter we're always trying to wake the dead and we're kind of running at the last minute, we just say, okay, let's just assume this is always going to happen. Let's define that audience and then automate it at scale and just kind of walk away. I mean, you should always check on it, of course, but uh, it's pretty easy just to ask people to do that for you. Now, sometimes you'll encounter people who don't want to automate it for some reason, or maybe that happened to be the last one you'll ever do. But I was very successful getting a lot of those nurture components built out in an automated fashion. And I think where some teams, to your point, maybe fail on that point is that it still becomes a little siloed, like, oh, we have one nurture for wake the dead, we have one nurture for recycle leads, et cetera. And it's like, okay, well, how do we stitch those together? Whether it's using a traffic hop or even just a more comprehensive journey map and say throughout the whole life cycle and pre and post sale, like let's just automate that whole workflow. And it's not, it's not easy to get people to agree to have a workshop about it, but once you have the workshop, mm -hmm. You can map all of the current state out, the future state out, and the next steps on a whiteboard. And ideally, that's relatively easy to do. And that's where you can obtain real agreement if you have the right people in the room and then make real headway on leveraging those capabilities that you've built up in the marketing operations team, the marketing automation platform, to make everything scalable and repeatable. Mm -hmm. And then work on the harder stuff after that. Yeah, it's great advice, Jeff. Is that helpful? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was I was laughing a bit inside because John and I were both at the same company and we're doing a lot of these these reheat campaigns. But I like the way you you coin it as waking the dead a little bit more. I was thinking to myself while you were talking about this, like by the time this episode drops in in twenty twenty four, I'm calling and I'm predicting this like the the deliverability boom of like the email world in twenty twenty four with all the changes that 
Google is making from personal emails, like this maybe won't affect B2B emails right away. Uh, workspace accounts are probably going to follow suit at some point and enter Postmaster. But, you know, that 0.3 spam threshold that a lot of companies aren't paying attention to right now and are just going to be having a really bad time next year when they just keep pressing play on those wake the dead or those reheat campaigns. Uh, do you think that like enough people are thinking about this right now? Like, I don't know how, how, how cut up you are on that or if you have any hot thoughts around there. It's hard not to be caught up. Everyone's talking about it on LinkedIn. I think it's kind of entertaining on some level because if you weren't already scrubbing your list to achieve those metrics, you, you were not doing a job in marketing operations. I always had those targets in mind. And those, those targets have actually been around for a long time. It, less than I would have had 0.2% unsubscribes, but 0.1% abuse or less is always a target, right? Otherwise you will get flagged by various by various lists and possibly get blocked by Barracuda or other. So myself, I wasn't too worried about this. If, you know, I was running, running the team as tightly as I did and running that system, but and all those tools can be automated, right? That's always one of the first things I would do with any organization is build out those list scrubbing processes so that we're not that we're moving toward that, those particular targets. Um, where the challenge has been, or I think most people are talking about it, is for tools like Outreach and Sales Lock, these sales automation tools, right? Or sales email automation tools, right? If, again, if you remember 10, 12 years ago, Marketo said, sales doesn't have to do that. You should automate it for them. Sales should focus on the relationships and you send them the MQLs. And I really bought into that, and I, in many ways, still do. Is, you can have it look like it's coming from the rep and you can manage it in a clean way and a compliant way. And I'm not saying people aren't doing that with outreach or sales off, but it's a lot harder to control what goes into those tools when marketing or mops doesn't have direct control over it. And I think outreach does in particular takes, uh, does try to manage that and they'll have some tools to manage that uh, flow of you know, hitting too many domains at once and things like that, which is helpful. But, you know, the salesperson has access and they just want to upload 50,000 leads. There's not a lot that can stop them unless you have an admin. So that that's where people are going to get in trouble. Um, that And also your corporate domain, because it doesn't have separate subdomains typically. That's where you're going to get in trouble. So all the advice out there is good. The question is, you know, can you convince sales to go along with it? Because, you know, you're trying to help them do better and focus and, but they, you know, the last few years they've been sold different bill of goods than we were sold 10 years ago. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the BDR role is going to require big changes in, in 2024, whether it's like new channels or rethinking the way they approach email, especially for, for personal users. But, uh, I, I want to play a devil's advocate just a little bit on, on you saying that, like, you know, for, for mops teams, like it's not, not that big of a concern. I think maybe you've had the pleasure of working with like high quality mops teams. And I'll agree that like a lot of the folks I've chatted with, like they, they have systems in place and like postmasters automating like complaint reports. Like it's, they're very much on top of it. FBL is set up. They know like culprits that coming in, but the reality is the, the majority, the average email marketer who maybe has like one mops person or not even a mops team that's sending out like 2000 plus Gmail emails, like on a weekly basis, 
they don't even have postmasters set up, let alone like knowing where their complaint rate is. So I, I don't think that this is only for, for BDRs and, and for people doing cold outreach. Like I was chatting with a company just yesterday who is like, yeah, we have postmasters set up. I never go in there. I'm sure we're under 0.3. They're consistently over the 1% mark. And it's, you know, like they don't have list scrubbing in place. They don't focus on, you know, how useful is this content that we're sending out? Are where are people opting in for this newsletter? Like there's there's a whole lot of concerns that people are just going to have a bad time with mail next year. And it's as an email marketer, it's going to be interesting to to follow along because like you, like I think everyone's talking about this on LinkedIn in our little like eco chamber of of marketing ops folks that are, you know, maybe thinking about this as rightly so. But yeah, it's a it's going to be interesting in 2024. Yeah, I, I think you're right that the people who need to worry are the people who haven't set up monitoring processes or automated yeah. list cleaning. Uh, and e even if you're not sure if your BDRs are doing the best practices, certainly in, in most maps, you can automate the list cleaning and you know flag those things and remove them from the process, ideally, by hitting you know your CRM or ch changing flags and such. And that's, that's a lot of what I had built out. You know, I, I guess Postmaster is more of a concern now, but, you know, we would check it periodically, but I wasn't, I, I found it difficult to set up and a little, I want to say, unclear what was happening. Maybe it's improved mm -hmm. in the last year or two, but, you know, we had everything set up and it was like, well, how do I actually see what's doing, what it's doing? And it was just very, wasn't really set up in a way that I would have expected. And uh, so I, I am curious if people are really leveraging that or can even leverage it effectively. And there are other ways to capture that effective data around, you know, are you hitting a 0.1 or greater abuse rate? Are you hitting a hard bounce rate? Are you hitting an unsubscribe rate just from your own map data and a couple other tools? But yeah, if you haven't set up that automation, I would do it now <laughs> to be doing it anyway. Yeah, didn't mean to hijack that conversation, JTNO. We're, we're close on time. Maybe <laughs> we hit up Josh with uh, our famous last question. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Phil. So, uh, Josh, we asked all guests of the podcast this. Uh, it's kind of one of the core principles of the podcast. You're a public speaker, an advisor, a consultant, an extremely busy guy. How do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things that you're working on uh, while staying happy? That's a deep question. Um, well, you know, for a long time, I don't know if I really had balance. I went very much all in on marketing technology, right? The blog, the book, always working on it on a daily basis. And, it, you know, that was, I enjoyed doing that. But at some point I stopped enjoying doing it all of the time. And I wanted to, you know, change my priorities a little bit. And that's one reason for you know, walking away from the blog and the community. You know, you just have to decide what a priority is, right? You can be very happy working all the time. Some people really are. Uh, and sometimes, you know, people want to change. So, that's one approach. I think that's been relatively effective. You know, I, I enjoy helping people in their careers. I enjoy helping people learn this field. That was always helpful in making me feel accomplished. Uh, thing you can always ask yourself that I try to do sometimes is, you know, did I do my job today? Even if it's always going to be work tomorrow, but did I do my job today? Even if it's not a full launch or something fully got, you know, sent out. It's, did I make advancement? Did I do what I should be doing as my current job today? Uh, that helps me kind of stay grounded and uh, happy in the career. And I think 
you know, it's important to always reflect on what do I want to do next, right? You know, for me, it's, you know, working on people management, it's working on larger scale technologies. It's also, you know, how do I enjoy also traveling and my family as part of that. Awesome. Great advice. I think that's a cool question to ask yourself at the end of the workday. Like the, did I do my work today? Like, did I, did I fulfill my purpose? And so, yeah, I think that's a good grounding exercise for sure. Josh, it's been a super fun conversation. Any, any last thoughts, uh, anything you want to plug for, for the audience? I know you said maybe you're going to get into LinkedIn a little bit more. Should folks be following you on LinkedIn anywhere else? Well, I certainly always appreciate follow. You know, I, I think I relieve anything is there's a lot of talk about how to advance your career a lot of it's always good advice you have to kind of decide what the next step is for yourself or you know what do you need help with right again it's not school you can ask for help whether it's you know on a podcast or in a community or you know asking a manager or someone else you know most people are willing to help awesome thank you so much josh this is super fun appreciate your time This episode was also brought to you by Iterable. Your customers didn't fall in love with a robot. They fell in love with your brand. Your customer data can be more than generic conversation starters. They can be meaningful relationship starters. Iterable makes it easy to turn your data into joyful interactions. As a customer myself, along with companies like Redfin, Calm, and Box, I've seen how Iterable is leading the way as an AI-powered marketing automation platform. While the old guard is still struggling to update their user interfaces from the mid-2000s, Iterable is way ahead of the game with a drag-and-drop journey builders, A-B testing, and AI features. Iterable keeps you ahead of the game with the latest AI features so your customers continue falling in love with your brand over and over. Check them out at iterable.com and tell them we sent you.